It's, what, five days until Christmas or something like that? It's coming up real quick here. So five shopping days left um, that uh, you can buy for your loved ones and everything. And it occurred to me, why do we give gifts at Christmas? What, what is the, the source of that? Uh, where did that start? Well, in thinking through that question, I looked to the fount of all wisdom and knowledge, Wikipedia. And Wikipedia has the answer for us. Wikipedia says, The giving of Christmas gifts is symbolic of the presentation of gifts by the three wise men to the infant Jesus. Well, most of you can uh, pick up pretty quickly. We have some problems with that. In Wikipedia, they mentioned three wise men. Now, we don't know how many wise men there were. That's the common thing we sing. We three kings from Orient are, and uh, the three wise men. But there were three gifts... But all we know is that there were multiple wise men. Maybe one guy, you know, brought the gold, and the other guy brought two gifts to, you know, show up the first guy. Or maybe it was 20 guys. We don't know how many of the wise men or magi came from the east. Um, But Wikipedia says three, um, so we'll trust them. Um, And it says, come to see the infant Jesus. Well, when they came, it took a little while. And you remember, uh, the book of Matthew talks about when they told Herod about this king that He wanted all the kids, the children killed from two years old and under. So more likely than not, Jesus was probably between one and two years old. And since infant, which I had to do research on this because I'm just a guy. um, Infant is zero to one years old is the infant category. So infant was probably not the right term anyway. So Wikipedia is a little bit off, I'm sorry to tell you. Um, It wasn't three wise men for the infant Jesus. And maybe it was the most at Christmas. We think of the father giving his son, sending his son to the earth. And that's what I was always reminded of growing up in a Christian home and growing up at this church, that that is the greatest gift of Christmas. And I wanted to look at that this morning. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And we're going to look at God's gift of Christ to us. And my hope as we look at this, this morning, 1 John 4, 9, and 10, that it will set our hearts, set our minds on the gift of Christ to come to this earth. And that as we celebrate Christmas, it's great to celebrate all the festivities, uh, having the tree, all these different things, but ultimately our minds need to be on Christ and his coming to earth and the gift that he give. And so the title for today's message is superlative love revealed. Superlative love, the greatest love revealed. And so we're going to look at 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Let me pray real quick for us before we look at this passage together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth in it. And ultimately, we thank you for Christ, the word made flesh. Lord, as we look at this passage, we consider our great Savior and your great love, which you showed toward us. Lord, may we be filled with joy and trust in you as we celebrate this year. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, often when I preach, I'm a, you know, uh, know that some people can get a little drowsy, 
close their eyes. Actually, today, I might be the one falling asleep, so that can make it a little more exciting for you. <laughs> Ever see a preacher fall asleep while he's preaching? Hopefully that won't happen. But we're going to look at 1 John 4. So to start with, I want to read verses 7 to 11 to be able to get the context for us. 1 John 4, 7 to 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, as we look at verses 9 and 10, particularly today, let's first remember, what is the first book of 1 John about? What is this epistle of John, and what was he telling us? Well, if we look down in chapter 5, so maybe uh, the page over from that, chapter 5, verse 13, John tells us the purpose that he wrote this letter. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wrote this letter so that his readers would have confidence that they have eternal life. And the reason he did this is because there had been a number of people that had left the church. In chapter 2, verse 19, he talks about those who had gone out from us. And there had been people that had left. There was false teaching that was happening. People who were claiming a new knowledge, who were claiming a superior knowledge that were leading some people away from the church. And those in the church were a bit shell-shocked. What's going on here? Is this new teaching something that we need to be following? Is this uh, correct, what we have been taught from the beginning? Are are we the ones truly saved or, or the ones who have left? Are they the ones who are truly saved? And so he writes this letter to tell them, this is how you can know that you are truly saved. And he writes this very loving letter to them. To explain that, he points out three main marks of an authentic Christian. Three ways that they can always know whether they're saved or not. If they have, number one, the right doctrine, that they truly know who Jesus is. And he weaves this theme again and again through the letter. You have to know who Christ is, have the right doctrine. Secondly, you have to have the right lifestyle. Your life should show obedience to Christ, obedience to his command. And so he reiterates this theme again and again in the letter. And the third mark of a true Christian that John presents is you have to have the right love. You should be loving others. And this theme of loving others is what's focused on here in the passage that we're looking on, this third mark of a true Christian. In fact, the larger section is chapter 4, verse 7 through 5, 5. And he discusses this right love that all Christians should have. And as we looked at this passage, uh, just having read it, we looked at verses 7 and 8 to start with. And in verses 7 to 8, Right before our text for today, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
And what John is saying, if you're a child of God, you will necessarily love other people. You cannot be a true child of God and not have a love for others. We have in our day and age uh, DNA tests, paternity tests using DNA. And in a lot of ways, this is similar. It's saying, look, part of God's DNA is love. God is love. That's who he is. If you're a Christian, you will share that DNA as well. You will love others. That's the only natural thing that will happen if you know God that you will love like he loves. So that is how he introduces this section in verses 7 and 8. And now we're going to see that John, having said in verse 8, God is love, he now wants to share with us what is the greatest expression of God's love. What, what is this love that he's speaking of? What is this great love? And there are many expressions, certainly of love in this world, aren't there? There's a love of a parent for a child. Uh, in my case, a love of a parent for a grandchild as well. Um, there's a love between a husband and a wife, a love between friends, for sure. There's love that gives and sacrifices for others. And these are important types of love. And certainly, we need to be demonstrating these, this love toward others. But the greatest love, the superlative love, greatest love of all was shown by God. And that's what John wants to share with us in verses 9 and 10. This is what love is. We spent a number of weeks looking at 1 Corinthians 13, <clears throat> as you recall, um, walking through the definition of love as provided by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the church in Corinth. And in that letter, we saw that this description of love was a series of actions. Those were all verbs. And this is what love does. This is how love behaves. One of very real sense here, as we look at love and the love that God demonstrated, it's also an action. It's also demonstrated by the Lord to us. And so today we're going to see two actions that reveal the superlative love of God. Two different actions here that reveal the greatest love that the world has ever known. The first is in verse 9, the incarnation, and then in verse 10, the atonement. And what I want to, you to walk away with today this isn't, uh, hey, here's a um, And certainly we should never have that feeling as we walk away from God's word, but we're just wanting to honor him. But the main thing I want to walk, you to walk away with today is a greater appreciation of God's love. We would all say, we would check the box, do I know that God is love? Yes, I know that. Do I understand what I say that God is love? Absolutely. But do we know what love costs the Lord? Do we understand how much he gave to us in sending his son? And when we understand that, we can be filled with joy at this Christmas season. It's not just the story of a little baby being born. This is God becoming flesh, and this came at a great cost, and he came for a reason. So today, we're going to look at two actions that reveal the superlative love of God so that you'll be able to rejoice more fully this Christmas season and really contemplate how great God's love is. So let's start then in verse 9. So point number one, the superlative love of God revealed in the incarnation. 
the superlative love of God revealed in the incarnation. Verse 9, you can look there in your Bibles. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Verse 9 starts off with, by this. And that connects us with the previous verse. He had just said, God is love. And now he's going to explain the love of God and what love truly looks like. So what kind of love are we talking about? God is love. By this, he says, the love of God was manifested in us. And we say the love of God. This isn't love toward God, but God's love toward us is what he's speaking of. This is God's love. And to be manifest means to be made visible, to be made clear. This is how love is now seen by us. It's not that God's love started with the giving of Christ, sending Christ to the earth, but this is how we can see it so visibly, so clearly. This, by this, the love of God was manifested and made visible. And he says, in us, in us. God's revealing of this love was not like a fireworks display. A fireworks display is just shot up in the air for everybody to see, and you may or may not see it. This is a love that's directed to you. This is a love that it shoots right at you and says, look, God is loving you by this action. This is a love that's manifested that is not just God happening to do something and we happen to see it, but that, this is God purposefully demonstrating love toward you. And so we will see now, how is he doing this? How is he demonstrating this love toward us? We see there, he goes on, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. God's love was shown to us in the sending of his son. Now, we can see just in this phrase, the sending of the son, that means that Jesus didn't begin to exist at Christmas time. It wasn't, uh, this is the start of Jesus no, he was sent. He existed beforehand in, in eternity past with the Father. We know that uh, John chapter 1, a passage uh, we're familiar with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus has not been around just since the creation of the world. He's the one who created the world. So he has been eternally existent with the Father, and it is just now that he is being made visible, that he is coming to earth. In John 1.14, we're reminded of the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus showed us his glory, a glory that demonstrates that he is very God. He is not just a representative from God. He is God himself, taking on flesh. And he was sent, it says, by the Father. In Philippians 2, we're familiar with the passage there, the great passage in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Talking about Christ, that although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, 
and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus set aside the independent use of his attributes, his, his glory in heaven to come to earth. And sent by the Father, obedient to the Father, always wanting to do the Father's will on earth. And certainly we see the love of Christ for us in his humility in coming to the creation he made. And he came for one reason. He didn't come to travel. I would think if you're God and you've made the world and you were to come, it, you'd want to see all the, the beautiful things in this world. But he did not. He came for one purpose. He came to be the sacrifice for us. Now in our verse, the focus is not on Christ's love for us, although we certainly know that's true, but on the Father's love in sending his only begotten Son into the world. Now the word only begotten, I think there's been confusion over that over the years, hasn't there? What does that mean, only begotten? Does that mean that this is the next generation? Usually we use the word uh, to beget uh, someone is to bring into existence a child. I beget uh, a son and a daughter, or I begat them, uh, my son and daughter. Um, or you may use begetting, like I hope I be getting a lot of presents this year. <laughs> that's not what's in view here. That's not, uh, that's not the meaning here. I hope I be getting. The, this phrase is used, only begotten, a number of times in Scripture, usually by John. We see it in John 1 and John 3. The verse we just looked at, John 1, 14. Um, Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. John 1, 18 uses this. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has explained him. And certainly, perhaps the most famous verse in Scripture, John three sixteen includes this phrase. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So what is this word? What does that mean, only begotten? Well, the, the Greek term is monogenes. It's a compound word, mono, uh, meaning only, and genes meaning of a class or kind. So really what it's meaning is it's one and only. So one of its kind, only one or unique is what it's saying. This is this is the only son, the one and only son of the father. And when we use that term one and only before son, it, it carries with the idea of beloved. When someone has an only child, when there's just one, it's especially precious, it's, it's thought of, um, to have only one. And so this is a beloved, the one and only beloved child of God. Now, certainly as Christians, we are children of God as well, in a sense, right? We are adopted into his family, but not in the same way as Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the Son of God in a one and only type of way. There is no other like Christ, for he is God himself that has come in flesh. So you can read it as the, the one and only. This is the one that God loves his, his one and only son that is so protected, and that was not enough. God sent his one and only son into the world. And the word sent there, it's important that we recognize sent is in the perfect tense. Well, what does that mean, sent? Isn't it just a completed action? That would be the aorist, just a one-time thing. No, it's perfect, meaning it's a past action with ongoing results. Something that happened that continues to have impact today. And is that not true of Christ being sent into the world? 
Yes, it was a one-time action, but the benefits continue to us today. Jesus was sent, but that means something to us today. And, and we find out what that means to us today in the very next phrase here. He was sent into the world that we might live through him. Here is a purpose, a purpose clause. Why was Jesus sent? It was so that we might live through him. Jesus was not sent into the world just to be an example for us. He was an example, but that's not the primary reason. He wasn't just sent into the world so he can sympathize with our weakness, though that is true. He was sent into the world so that, he, so that we might live, that he might make us alive. And that means everything to us, doesn't it? That we might be made alive. Now, we can't say that we might be made alive without realizing, well, that means what? We must have been dead. And Scripture makes it clear that is exactly what we are before we know Christ. Ephesians 2.1 says that, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Every one of us were, in a very real sense, walking dead, spiritually dead before him. But Jesus came that we might live. In fact, in Ephesians 2 again, it says that, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Christ came that we might have life. That life, spiritual life, was only possible because Christ came. And God sent his son, his only beloved son, so that we might have this life. Jesus declared he was the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Later in 1 John, we're reminded, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 1 John 5.11 He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so this coming of Jesus, he provides us life, reminds us that if we repent of our sin, we recognize that we are spiritually dead. If you recognize that you cannot have life apart from him and put your trust in him, you can know life. You can have this life that God provides and we can have peace with God, joy and relationship with God. And as we celebrate Christmas this year, certainly we, we enjoy many of the things surrounding, but to know that we can have life, that we now have life because of Christ, that the Father sent his Son so that we can have life, gives us the real joy. And we don't have this heavy burden of guilt. If to know life, to have Christ meant it was always living up to a certain standard and always felt, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough for the Lord? But to know that Christ is the one who makes us alive when we put our trust in him, removes that burden and our joy is found in Christ alone. Now in verse 10, he explains how this is possible and how this plays out. In verse 10, we see the superlative love of God, point number two here, the superlative love of God revealed in the atonement. How does God make us alive? What does that look like? Verse 10 says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He says in this is love. He wants to further describe the greatest love ever and the love that we must emulate in our lives. Verse 10 is not a completely separate thought, but an expansion of what he has said in verse 9. He wants to expand and explain more of why we can live through Christ. And he says this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. It is not our love toward God that demonstrates the greatest love of all. It is God's love towards us. And there's a strong contrast here. The Greek actually is a very strong contrast saying, not this, definitely not this, but this. And we see the not being our love for God. It is not our love that initiated God's love toward us. It's nothing that you have done, nothing that I have done that could have initiated God's love for us. God is the one who loved first. We already saw that we were spiritually dead, right? Before Christ, we were walking dead. But now we're going to see what's worse is not only were we dead, but we we had no love for God. And Scripture makes it clear our horrid state before Christ. Romans 5, verses 8 to 10, shows us we were enemies of God. That was our condition. We were enemies of God. And it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved through his life. So we were dead. We were not lovers of God. We were enemies of God. We also sought after our own fleshly desires. That's how we were. Ephesians 2, 3. We all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. We also see in Titus 3.3 that we were foolish and hateful. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Is that someone that you'd go out of your way to love? No, certainly not. It's hard to love someone who can be described as envious, hateful, and hating others. And yet that's how we were when God sent Christ to make us alive. We were nothing to be sought after. We were not ones that were seeking after God at all. In fact, Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, turned each one to his own way. We were not seeking after God, but God initiated. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God initiated this great love. And as we celebrate Christmas, we remember, this is God's love toward us in sending Christ. And that phrase there that he loved us, it's actually more emphatic even in the original, that he himself loved us. It includes an extra emphasis there. He himself loved us. God himself initiated this and showed us the love. And he is the The source then of any true love, any great love that the world knows, it was only because the source itself is God. It's not that we loved him. And if you are uncertain about your salvation, you think, I I don't know if I can do enough to be a Christian. I've been seeking God, but I just fail again and again. 
Well, the good news of the gospel is you don't have to be good enough to deserve God's love. In fact, you can't be good enough to deserve God's love. But you have to be willing to say, Lord, I know I'm not good enough. Trusting in your own hard work to be saved. But what Christ has done. And even as believers, we can get in the wrong thinking of, I need to be doing good works to maintain my salvation. That God will love me if, if I'm faithful at church and Bible study and I'm doing my devotions each day. And maybe if I miss reading the Bible a couple days, God doesn't love me as much as, as he would otherwise. Well, that's not true. God's love is not dependent on you. We love out of gratitude in response to God's initial love. God has done so much to demonstrate love to us. It's our only right response to live in love and obedience to him. But not trying to earn that love, but in response to it. And that's what's made so clear here. It's not that we loved God, but that he himself loved us. And this was perfectly demonstrated. We see here in the last phrase in verse 10. How was this great love of God demonstrated? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And here we look at the atonement of Christ. And this final phrase in verse 10 there, sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, is parallels what's in verse 9 there, that we might live through him. Now we see how, how can we be made alive? Well, it's only because of what Christ has done here, as explained at the end of verse 10. And the word that's used here is propitiation. Now, I don't know about you, but in my daily conversation, I'm not using the word propitiation. Uh, maybe you are. I don't know. Um, I'm not that intelligent to be able to be using that constantly. But propitiation is a word we don't typically use. Basically, it means appeasement or satisfaction. To satisfy something. And in this case, it's, to stop, it's speaking of satisfying the wrath of God appeasing God's wrath against sin. And the, and the punishment that sin deserves. Our sin is not bad just because it has a lot of harmful effects. And certainly it does. Uh, the way of the, the wicked is hard. And there are harmful effects to others. There's harmful effects to ourselves when we sin. But the real offense of sin is re it's rebellion against God is telling God, you know, I don't care what you want me to do. I'm going to live my own way. And it breaks that relationship with the Lord. And it's contrary to God's holiness. We are offending God's holiness when we sin. And therefore, the only just, the only righteous thing for God to respond to our sin is wrath. We have a God of wrath. And wrath is appropriate when it's something that, that is wicked. I mean, certainly we would say on a very human level, if there was a, a murderer who did horrible things to people and tortured others, to say, hey, it's no problem. Uh, let's just overlook what he's done. Would that be appropriate in any way? Certainly not. We would say, no, that, that person must be punished. That is absolutely wrong. Well, on a much greater scale, we serve a holy God, perfectly righteous, were he to overlook sin, well, that would be a tragedy. That would not be just. He would not be righteous to overlook sin. No, he has to have wrath against sin, or he's not really a righteous God. 
And the fact is, he is righteous, and so he does have wrath against sin. And the scripture makes that clear. John 3.36 mentions this. He who believes in the Son is eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Romans 1.18 reminds us of this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is against unrighteousness and ungodliness. And in Romans 2.5, those who reject God, it says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath. Wrath is the proper response of God towards sin. And this is a wrath that every one of us deserve. But God's wrath was satisfied. It was appeased on our behalf, and that was done by Christ. He is the satisfaction for God's wrath, it says. The propitiation for our sins. Were Christ not the one who satisfied God's wrath, you and I would have to face that wrath of God and eternal punishment in hell. And if you do not know Christ, you will face that wrath of God. But for those of you knowing Christ, we do not have to face that wrath of God. But Jesus was that satisfaction. He absorbed God's wrath upon himself on the cross. And when we think of the cross, we remember all the physical pain that Christ suffered there with a crown of thorns on his head and those thorns being shoved into his skull. We remember the lashes on his back that ripped the flesh off his back and then was pressed up against that cross. We think of the nails that pierced his hands and the nails that pierced his feet. And the physical pain that Christ suffered on the cross was immense. But even that physical pain did not compare to taking on God's wrath. And that is when darkness fell upon the land. And Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the propitiation for our sin where Christ took on our punishment, took on the wrath of God for our, on our behalf. And it was because of that we can live, that we don't have to face that wrath because he's a propitiation for our sins. And certainly as we think of Christmas, and we think of the joy that comes and a cute little baby being born and we have little nativity scenes. And that's, it's great. It is a beautiful thing. And yet there's one reason that Christ came. He came to be the propitiation. He was sent by the Father to be the propitiation, to take on the wrath of the Father on our behalf. And that makes the Christmas story, that makes the celebration of, oh, Christ being born, so much more meaningful when we remember he was coming to take our sin that we might live, that we might be free from the wrath of God. And this is the greatest love ever. This is how God demonstrated his love, how it was manifested to us in the sending of Christ, in the incarnation, in the sending of Christ to be the sacrifice, to atone for our sins on the cross. And we rejoice for that.
that Christ was sent not only to live, but also to die. One of the more modern hymns that I think touches on this, that I appreciate, speaks of the great Father's love for us in Christ. It says, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. So as you celebrate Christmas this year, remember the superlative love of God, the greatest love that's ever been, that history has ever known, was shown in Christ coming to earth and coming to be our sacrifice. And may we be able to rejoice in that this Christmas time as we celebrate that together. Well, let me pray and Let's thank the Lord together for Christ. Father, we thank you for the truths in these verses, the truth about Christ's coming and sacrifice. We, we know it's so um, cliche to remember to say, well, Christ is Christmas, remember Remember Christ, but um, Lord, often we don't do that. And in the back of our minds, we know it's true. And yet to recognize the cost it was for you to send, Father, your beloved, your one and only Son, and you said, Lord, nothing else would do. Nothing else could satisfy your wrath except the perfect Son. Lord, and we thank you that Christ came willingly. He sacrificed himself willingly for us. Lord, such a love uh, we could never repay. But Lord, we want to honor you. We want to uh, love you in return, not to repay you, but just out of sheer gratitude for your kindness toward us. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship we have together and that we can rejoice with each other in Christ's great love. We pray this in his name. Amen.